Normally, at this uh, point in my presentation, I start talking about the subject of shirk. I start looking at texts from, uh, from the Quran. But what I want to do uh, today is I want to sort of take a little bit of a detour, talk a little bit about the Quran and the Bible, uh, and then move back into the presentation I was doing last evening once we have a little bit of a basis about the Quran. In the process, uh, I would like to pass around uh, to you um, a copy of the Quran. Uh, this is the standard 1924 Egyptian printing that is utilized um, uh, especially in Arabic countries primarily. There are other printings in Pakistan and, and places like that. Uh, this is the Arabic Quran. You will notice that there are really no references other than my little pieces of uh, paper here. Uh, but there are no footnotes or anything like that. Uh, but this would be considered the standardized version of the Quran. Um, so standardized is it uh, that I remember very clearly listening to a lecture by Sheikh Yasser Qadi once where he was uh, trying to quote a particular uh, text from the Quran in Arabic and he was struggling a little bit with it. And uh, what he ended up saying was, well... It's, it's the second page of the surah on the right-hand side at the top. Now think about what that means. You have to be having a very standardized version of the Quran to be able to say, well, you know, it's on page such and so at the right-hand side. Everybody, you know, I suppose if we all... Even if everybody in here had the ESV study Bible, we still couldn't do that because there are different editions of the ESV study Bible. You know, there's the big honking thing that TSA won't let you on the plane because it weighs too much and is a deadly weapon. And then you've got the eye strain version of it and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So we just don't, we just don't have anything remotely like the kind of standardized text uh, that that text would represent. And don't underestimate the mental uh, impact that that has upon your average Muslim. What they think is, look, we have one Quran. And they look at us and they say, you have a billion Bibles. We have one Quran, you have a billion Bibles. Now, is that a fair criticism? Well, I would say we probably have too many English translations, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, why do we need a new English translation? Can someone tell me that? Is it because the new American standard isn't all that new anymore? I mean, is, is that why? The, the reason, quite honestly, that we have as many English translations of the Bible as we have is every major publisher wants their own translations. They don't have to pay somebody else to use their translation in their study Bibles. That's the only reason. That's not really a good reason for all the different translations that we have today. There are some really good ones, but look, there's only so many ways of saying it in English. You know, I mean, when the ESV came out, everybody was asking me, what do you think about the ESV? Uh, well, it's the New American Standard without semicolons. That's, that's pretty much about all there is to it. It's, it's the NASV without semicolons. There's just not too many different ways you can do it without getting really inventive. And then once you become inventive, you're sort of mistranslating things. So in the Muslim mind, there is one Quran and there are many, many Bibles. And for, from, in their thinking, that means there is a lack of accuracy in the transmission of the text of the Bible. Now, they are, they're literally uh, confusing apples and oranges because there are all sorts of translations of the Quran, but even they wouldn't use necessarily the term translation because they don't believe that the meanings of the Quran can really be translated out of Arabic into another language. At least most of them do not. Um, and so uh, that is something that, that crosses their mind as, uh, as they compare these things together. But let's look at the Quran the Bible and let's try to compare them uh, together. Now, I didn't put a historical section here, so let me just mention to you uh, so you have some background. Um, Islam comes after Christianity. Islam, uh, Muhammad dies, uh, according to Islamic sources, in 632 A.D., in Medina, uh, which originally was called Yathrib, the city of the prophet, uh, became the city of the prophet uh, Medina. And about how far is it uh, by car from Mecca to Medina, approximately, would you say, since you lived in that area? That's why I'm asking you all. Less than an hour. Yeah, it's not, it's not very far. By camel, it took a while. <laughs> uh, but uh, by car, it's not, not quite, as, quite as far. Um, 
he began his quote-unquote prophetic ministry in 610 A.D., when contemplating in a cave, uh, the angel Jabriel comes to him and says to him, Recite. And uh, he says, I cannot. Uh, most Muslims believe that, that Muhammad was an illiterate man, though there's some evidence that he had to have had some capacity at reading and writing because of his... Uh, leading caravans. Uh, Mecca was a city that was dependent upon caravans for its survival. Uh, It did not have the kind of climate that allowed it to, for example, provide food for its inhabitants unless it brought that food in from elsewhere. It was a trading city. And so since he had uh, done many caravans for his uh, wealthy wife, Khadijah, uh, he would have had to have had some facility in that. But be it as it may, um, the angel Jabril told him to recite. He said, I cannot. And Jabril squeezed him so hard he thought he was going to die. And he told him again. He said, I cannot. This happens repeatedly until then the first portion of the Quran is revealed to Muhammad. Now, Muslims believe that the Quran is the word of God in a way that the Bible is not to Christians. That is, that what Jabril, Gabriel, delivers to Muhammad, Natsal, to send down in Arabic. What is sent down is representative, a direct quotation from what exists upon a heavenly tablet. And in fact, centuries later, it became the orthodoxy of Islam uh, to believe that the Quran is as eternal as Allah himself. That the Quran itself is uncreated. It has eternally existed, which means it's eternally existed in Arabic, which means Arabic as a language has eternally existed. Now, immediately from a linguistic perspective, you go, well, wait a minute. Uh, Arabic is clearly a derivative language from previous languages. There are all sorts of, even though the Quran says that the Quran is written in clear, mubinun Arabic, uh, in reality, there's over 125 loan words from other languages in the Quran. And so... Arabic was not the primitive language. It was not the language of Adam or something like that. Uh, But Arabic does have a very special place in Islamic theology, uh, even though a minority of Muslims speak Arabic. In fact, the majority of the world's Muslims do not have access to that Quran. Because remember, last night I said 16 to 19% of the world's Muslims are Arabic. Uh, which means that the vast majority are not. And hence, when you hear about these competitions, maybe you haven't heard of these competitions, but they have competitions. Uh, I think they are in Saudi. Uh, I, know, I know there are some in Saudi. Sometimes there are, are uh, in other nations where young people come from around the world who have memorized the entirety of the Quran in Arabic, even though their mother language is not Arabic. In fact, sometimes they memorize the entirety of the Quran and they don't know what they have memorized. Can you imagine what it would be like to memorize a book that is approximately two-thirds the length of the New Testament? Three-quarters. Between two-thirds and three-quarters the length of the New Testament. In a language you do not understand and to do it perfectly. Can you imagine what that is like? And yet that is, that is what people do. Um, uh, it, it's, 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 just, it's, it's amazing to consider. So from their perspective... That language is a divine language. I mean, we, we noticed last evening, you, you, to say the Shahada, you have to say it in Arabic. Even if you have to say, La ilaha, you have to make, get someone to, to, to work through this, and they don't even know what they're saying, but they have to repeat after you on a, on a syllabic level. Uh, that's okay. Uh, that's still how you say the Shahada. That's still how you make your profession of faith. One of the things I didn't point out last night, and I should have, um, is how fundamentally different that is from the Christian confession of faith. How many of you made your confession of faith in Biblical Hebrew or Koine Greek? You see? Uh, when, you're, when you're importing a, a language and a culture and everything, that is one of the key issues to keep in mind in regards to this. So, from their perspective, the Quran is the very Word of God. And therefore, since they take it in that sense, they look at the New Testament and they say, how, how can you not see the corruption? 
I mean, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, uh, bring, the, bring the, the cloaks and the parchments. How can that be the Word of God? God doesn't need cloaks, cloaks and parchments. And, and when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I give you my opinion, not the Lord's. Now, that's one they really misrepresent, by the way. That's used over and over again from the Corinthian correspondence. Uh, I, I have no tradition of the Lord, but I say. All he's saying is, there is nothing recorded, and the Gospels bear this out, where Jesus, the Lord Jesus, during his earthly ministry, ever addressed this particular subject. But I, as an apostle, tell you this. Paul's not saying, uh, this isn't from the Lord, this is just from me, it's not inspired. That's not what he's saying, but I've heard many Islamic apologists misuse that text that way. You just you want to be prepared for that when they, when they bring that kind of thing up. But the point is, they look, at, they look at how our scriptures come along, and they look at, for example, the imprecatory Psalms. Psalm 137, blessed are those who take your little children and dash their heads against the rocks. Can't be God's word. And they also believe that, the, that, that God's word would never record the sinful deeds of men. And so, uh, I was mentioning at lunch, uh, you know, the, the prophets, the, the, the Quran talks about many of the biblical prophets. But it doesn't talk about their sins. Because to be a biblical prophet means that you didn't engage in those kinds of sins. So Solomon doesn't have 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the irony is, David's mentioned in the Quran. Even Nathan is mentioned in the Quran. And even Nathan comes to David in the Quran. But the Quran never tells you why Nathan comes to David. Because it's not going to mention something like that about something that David did. Because David would never have done anything like that. So the Muslim believes that that the Bible has been corrupted because it records these evil actions on the part of these biblical prophets. And so, from their perspective, what you're looking at there, now it's in the back of the room here, what you're looking at in that Arabic Quran is a perfectly accurate rendering through the prophet Muhammad of what is on the heavenly tablet and are the very words of God, not what we believe, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No. And so from their perspective, they're actually rather offended if we say something along the lines of, well, we clearly see here that the author of the Quran did not understand what Christians believed about the doctrine of the Trinity. Which you have to say, that was the subject of the last debate that I did with a Muslim in London, was the fact that the Quran, the author of the Quran, did not understand the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll get into that this afternoon. From their perspective, that's impossible. Because the author of the Quran was not Muhammad. You can't talk about what Muhammad would or would not have known, would or would not have understood. That's out of bounds, because what you're dealing with are simply the words of God, period, end of discussion. And for the vast majority of Muslims, they believe that what you have in that, they don't know that's the 1924 Egyptian printing. That's just all they've ever known. And look, we know Christians are the same way. We know Christians that, look, isn't, didn't Paul give us the Schofield Reference Bible in King James? I mean, come on. And they seriously, they just never thought through it. I remember the first time listening to, you know, I was even raised in a Christian home. My dad went to Moody Bible Institute. But I remember the first day it really struck me in a church service where the, the pastor was going, uh, well, the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the Greek here says this, and I remember thinking to myself, why do I care what the Greeks think about this anyways? You know, I'm, I, I'm an American. The Greeks said, you know, what, what, they've got interesting sandwiches, but why should I be concerned about what they think about the Bible? You know, I don't understand. Uh, and there just people haven't thought this through. Well, they honestly believe that what they're looking at in that Arabic Quran is exactly what was given to Muhammad. It exactly represents uh, that, and that there's been no changes, no differences down in the history of the Quran. Well, you're going to see things in the presentation here in a few minutes that 99.99% of the Muslims in the world have never seen. Uh, I gave this presentation in a debate with the Imam Shamsi Ali uh, in Queens in 2008 or 2009. I think it was November of 08 or sometime in 09. Once you get to my age, as long as you're within the right decade, it's okay. Um, and um, uh, we had... We were at a liberal Presbyterian church. I mean a dying liberal Presbyterian church in Queens. Beautiful, beautiful building. Oh, seat a thousand people. And there hadn't been more than 20 people in that building at one time for decades. And then we had that debate there and we had standing room only. 
And of the thousand people in there, 800 of them were Muslims. And they got to watch all this. It was very quiet. Very, very interesting. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at it. So, so the Quran then begins coming down in 610. When Muhammad leaves the cave, he comes home to Khadijah and says, I have been indwelt by a demon. He is convinced that the jinns have gotten him. And it's Khadijah that convinces him, no, you're a good man, this couldn't be the jinns, this must be God speaking to you. And so from 610 to 622, Muhammad is the head of a persecuted religion. Because the primary source of income for Mecca was the fact they had the Kaaba and people came there to worship. And so there was, look, it was tourism. And here comes a guy who's coming along and saying, oh, no, 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 there's only one true God, Allah. All these others are false. The daughters of Allah that were very important to the Meccans, false gods. Well, they're not going to appreciate that any more than the silversmiths did when Paul came along preaching against their religion in the book of Acts. And so there is persecution of Muslims, there's murder of Muslims, there's beating of Muslims. Uh, Some Muslims head off to uh, uh, a Christian nation to uh, avoid some of the the, the persecution. Uh, Eventually, in 622, uh, Muhammad and his followers, as I said, go to Yathrib, which becomes Medina, the city of the prophet. This is called the Hijra, and this is the beginning of the Islamic calendar. Now, the Islamic calendar, when you talk about the years, you remember something, they use a lunar calendar. And so you have to, I don't know how they did it before computers, but you basically have to go online and find a, a converter because a lunar year, they don't add, like the Jews add in a month to, to make it sync back up with the sun. They don't do that. They just have 12 lunar months, and so their year is considerably shorter than the solar year, and so it, it, it's, it's very different to calculate the year in the Julian calendar versus the, the uh, Hijra calendar, but uh, you'll see the differences in the published materials that you read and things like that. Now realize that if, if you ever decide to pick up the Quran and read it, and, and I would, if, you're, if, if you're, you want to be prepared to witness the Muslims, then read it. I mean, I don't suggest this just easy reading or just fun reading for a Christian to do. It's spiritual warfare. But, honestly, one of the greatest advantages I've ever had in witnessing to Muslims or Mormons or, or people like that is when they find out you actually have taken the time to know what they believe and can represent what they believe accurately. I mean, how many of us would give somebody the time of day if they came up to us and said, oh, I see you're a Christian. You're reading your Bible, say, at a restaurant or something like that. I see you're a Christian, yeah. Uh, your religion's nuts. Oh, really? Have you ever read the Bible? No, but my brother-in-law showed me a movie about it once. Now, how much credibility does that person have in your eyes? Zero, as they should. And yet we expect people, you know, we expect, you know, the more missionaries knock on the door and we open the door and, uh, ah, you're part of a cult. Really? I read the Book of Mormon? Nah, but I saw a movie about it once at church. But you need to be, but I need to have credibility in your eyes. Well, it just doesn't work that way. And so if you're, if you're going to do it, if you're going to read it, first of all, get a decent translation. And uh, the, the best translation I've found so far is the Sahih International translation. It's not the most popular, but it is uh, as far as I've been able to... It's, it's, it's what I'm using in the books I'm writing right now as my base text. That doesn't mean it's perfect. There's some times I'm going to have to say, now in reality, they sort of missed it here and, and, and give another translation or, or something like that. But in general... I've found it to be the least biased uh, so far. Uh, the most popular one you'll find in bookstores is by Yusuf Ali. Uh, it has footnotes and explanatory notes. It's sort of the Schofield reference Bible of the Muslim world, uh, in, in a sense. Um, and, or the ESV Study Bible or something like that, uh, if I'm going back too far <laughs> by using Schofield. Uh, but um, it, it's not the best translation. Uh, it, the reason it predominates is Saudi Arabia cranks them out by the hundreds of thousands and ships them over here. So uh, your, your gas dollar is paying for the Yusuf Ali. That's sort of how that works. But anyway, um, if you're going to read the Quran, though, don't do what they were doing on 912. 
September 12th of 2001, when all the CNN reporters go running into Barnes & Noble and buy up all the Qurans, and they're sitting there before their report, thumbing through, trying to find something uh, to add to their report, uh, most people buy the Quran and you start reading at Surat al-Fatiha, which is the first, the opening, and then Surat al-Baqarah, the, the, the cow, and then you read the, the next one, and Surat al-Maida, and, you, and you're, you're reading 1 through 114. There are 114 surahs in the Quran, or what we would call chapters. That's how most people would read a book. That's not the way to read the Quran. Because you see, the Quran does not give much in the way of historical background to itself to begin with. And there's a lot of disputation amongst Muslims as to exactly what one text is about, one other text. It's not like reading 1 Corinthians. We can go back and go, okay, here's Corinth. This is what Corinth was like in the first century. Uh, this is what was going on politically. This was the languages. This is the religion. Here's who Apostle Paul was. Uh, we've got the story in Acts. It was going there. We've got all this contextual stuff that can help us to understand some of the things that are being said. And even then we have disputes. The Quran doesn't hardly ever get anywhere near giving you that kind of background information. And so, the worst part is, the organization of the Quran is completely confusing. Because, while Surat al-Fatiha, the the opening, is just a short opening prayer, then the next surah, surah 2, is the longest surah in the Quran. And Surah 3 is the next longest, and Surah 4 is the next longest. It's organized by length. Which means if you read it from beginning to end, you're bouncing back and forth between two major periods of time in Muhammad's life. When Muhammad is a minority prophet in Mecca, that's where you get all the stuff about freedom of religion and no compulsion in religion, because he's in the minority. Then he goes to Medina, now he's the prophet. Eventually, he's the head of the conquering armies. And now you have Surah 9 and don't blaspheme the prophet and fall after the prophet and fight against the unbelievers and off with their heads. And so you've got two completely different periods of time in Muhammad's life. But if you read the Quran straight through, you're bouncing back and forth, sometimes within the same Surah, between different periods in his life. And as a result, you're just left going, what is this talking about? I mean, it's difficult enough to follow it even otherwise, but even more so when you do it that way. So, if you want to read the Quran, go to my website, aomen.org, go to my blog, and search on the word chronological. Chronological. And about the first thing that will come up is a table that I provided a long time ago, and I leave it there, of about the best guess we have. And there's differences, it's not going to be perfect, but it's about the best guess that we've got as to the actual chronological order of the surahs. So you can at least read the Quran in a chronological order, starting at the beginning and moving to the end, and then you can sort of follow the natural progression of things in Muhammad's thought and stuff like that. It will at least help along those lines. There's also a book by Yahya Emmerich uh, called, I think, A Journey Through the Quran, which is about yay thick, uh, it's also available on Kindle, if any of you have the Kindle reader. Um, I am actually listening to it. I, had, I recorded it off my Kindle, and between debates and stuff like that, uh, I was mentioning to some folks, you know, some, some folks know that I'm a rider. I, I spend 12 to 15 hours a week right now on a, on a bike, averaging about 210 to 220 miles a week. That's a long time, a lot of time, especially since it's going to be 108 degrees tomorrow in Phoenix. Um, but dry, sorry. Uh, I, I'm not sure which is worse, 108 and dry or 98 and moist. I think it's 98 and moist, uh, to be honest with you. But uh, that's when I do my studying, is I record books from my Kindle, or I also have software on my Mac that anything in PDF, HTML, text, Word document, as long as I can get it in, in printed form, I can convert it to MP3 and I can listen to it. So I'm listening to all of the Hadith literature and, and all this stuff. I mean, if, when I get hit by that truck someday, uh, the cops are going to scrape me up and they're going to they start listening to my iPod going, what was this guy listening to? Because there will be, there'll be Arabic vocabulary and debates and, uh, and uh, Ibn Ishaq and all this stuff. Uh, and it's like, no wonder you got to run over by a truck if you listen to stuff like that. But um, it doesn't make me go much faster either, I can assure you. It's not really heart-pounding, exciting stuff, you know, but... Um, uh, that's, that's what I do. So, 
anyways, uh, Yahya Emmerich, I have that. And what it does is it gives you the background from the Hadith to each section, uh, especially the longer surahs, because sometimes they're compilations of a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. It gives you all the background. So that, that's very, very useful as well if you want to go that direction. So all of that to say that over the course of 22 years, between 610 and 632, all these revelations allegedly come forth. Now, there are, there are men called, and women called Orientalists, Western scholars, who have some very interesting and radical theories, including the idea that Muhammad never existed, that there never was a Muhammad. That uh, the early Christians, you know what all the early Christians who encountered Islam thought it was? They thought it was a Christian heresy. They first identified it as a Christian heresy, not as a completely different religion. Um, I remember speaking with one scholar who is absolutely convinced uh, that Muhammad was created many, many uh, decades after Muhammad's death, uh, and that the uh, original confession uh, in, in Islam had to do with Jesus. Uh, so there's all sorts of interesting theories out there. I don't get into them because I can't prove them. I, I generally go with the Islamic under, self-understanding of itself because I, I think that's what you have to deal with the vast majority of, of Muslims. But there are other perspectives out there. Uh, there is some reason to believe that the Quran was put together over a period of time, that there was a major revision of the Quran around 705 AD, uh, which is long after the days of Muhammad. I mentioned one of the reasons last night, that the Qibla of certain of those ancient mosques point toward Jerusalem, not toward Mecca. And yet the changing of the direction from, Mecca to, from Jerusalem to Mecca is found in the Quran. So if you're building mosques in the year 700 that are facing the wrong way, but the Quran's been around for 70 years, why would, you, why would that be? One of the questions that is as yet unanswered and, and may remain unanswered if we don't ever get access, archaeologically speaking, to those, uh, to those sites to be able to look at those things and to examine those particular pieces of information. So, there you have an idea of the Quran, a little bit of its background, a little bit, a little bit of, its, uh, of its history. Let's take a look at uh, what we have here. From the Islamic perspective, the Quran are the direct words of God, not of men. They believe that many books, plural, uh, have been set down. Kutubi, the, kutub, kitab, even in Hebrew, it means to write. And so, many books have been sent down over time. Uh, from God to men. The Quran is the final one of those. And the Quran acts as a guard, a, a muhaymin, a guard over the others. Most Muslims would believe what that means is it's the standard. And remember last night when, when we listened to Shabir Ali, what, how, did, how did Shabir answer my question about how we could know what's inspired in the New Testament? By the Quran. Anything in the New Testament that agrees with the Quran is inspired. Anything that doesn't agree with the Quran is, is not inspired. So it's anachronistic. It's looking backwards and it's taking the Quran as the lens through which everything else is viewed and that's how the Muslim functions. And that's a, that's, a, that's a huge barrier to try to get over is that they're looking backwards. Instead of recognizing their book should be being examined in light of the consistency of its testimony to the previous books, they look at it in a the, in the backwards way. They make it the standard and then filter anything out of the Old and New Testament that doesn't agree uh, with that. Now, the Quran, government-controlled textual transmission. Government-controlled textual transmission. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, there's a vast difference between how the Christians existed in the first 300 years of their existence and Islam existed. We were a persecuted religion. The Roman Empire was trying to destroy our scriptures. Just the opposite is the case in the transmission of the text of the Quran over time. Uh, the government controlled that. And we're going to look at specifics of that in just a moment. And the result of that is you have a generally unified textual history. Most of the manuscripts of the Quran that we have pretty much say the same thing. I mean, any handwritten manuscript is going to have variations in it. But generally, they say pretty much the same thing because they were produced by the government and dissenting perspectives were in essence suppressed. And that's going to result in a, in a pretty unified textual history. I'm, as I've mentioned, the right down here, the 1924 Egyptian edition viewed by most as the official version in Arabic today. 
Now compare that with the Bible, where you have 40 authors over a course of 1,500 years. With the Quran, you have one author over 22 years. 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years. Two major languages, Hebrew and Greek. There is one minor language, Aramaic. There's about 12 chapters grand total of the Old Testament, uh, primarily in Daniel, that are written in Aramaic. The textual history of the Old Testament is very different than that of the New Testament. That is how we got the Old Testament text, primarily given to the people of God, to the children of Israel, different than how we get the New Testament, which is spread out all over the Roman world very, very quickly in the first generation of Christian believers. The Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, that's the, what we call the Old Testament, but if you're talking to a Jewish person, they would you know, sometimes recoil when you say the Old Testament, but the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writings passed on to the nation of Israel. The key translation of the Old Testament is the Greek Septuagint, which, by the way, is the Bible of the early church. The vast majority of citations in the New Testament come from the Greek Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. Uh, because that's what their, their uh, audience would have been reading anyways. Hebrew and Arabic are both Semitic languages based upon mainly triliteral roots. Uh, so there's a lot of connection between Hebrew and Arabic in how it expresses things. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Koine simply means common, the everyday Greek of the day. An accurate language capable of in-depth exegesis. The New Testament demonstrates what is called multifocality. Uh, That is, it was written by multiple authors at multiple times to multiple audiences. And that is a very important aspect of the text. Uh, There is my explanation of that. From its inception, the New Testament being a collection of books was beyond the control of any one person or group. Unlike the Quran, which was under the control of one person or group, the New Testament could never have been controlled that way because it was written by multiple authors at multiple times, at multiple locations, to multiple different audiences. There wasn't just one place that wrote the New Testament. Uh, It was written at different times by different people, sometimes far separated from one another. And remember, the role was a lot bigger back then. What I mean by that, of course, is that travel was much slower, communication was much slower. Um, And so the idea of conspiracy... Uh, so as to control something much more difficult at that time uh, than uh, modern conspiracy theorists like Dan Brown would uh, have us to believe. This means the early copies of the New Testament were distributed far and wide, resulting in multiple streams of transmission. As a result, we have a rich early textual history that protects the text from controlled, centralized editing and change. There simply is no way that anyone could have done what Dan Brown theorized was done in editing the text of the New Testament. If you don't know who Dan Brown is, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, If you remember the movie, you know, Constantine comes along and, and, uh, you know, he wants to present a different type of Jesus than than the real Jesus who was married and had a wife and kids and all the rest of this stuff. And so Dan Brown comes up with this theory about all the editing of the text of the New Testament and destroying all the original uh, Gospels and coming up with new Gospels. It's just not possible. Uh, not only do we have manuscripts long before the time of Constantine, uh, but that would have required some controlling body to exist that could control the text of the New Testament. No such controlling body ever existed. The Christian people were a persecuted people. They were a minority people. Uh, they had no power. Uh, and the idea that they could somehow control the text of the New Testament this way is simply not a possibility. Um, this is my whole story about how the New Testament came to go and stuff like that. And I'm, gonna, I'm trying to get it to uh, go past this a little bit faster than it uh, wants to go by here because I just don't have time to do this. This is a really, really neat section, but uh, it's just it's, it's neat to make manuscripts run around, run around maps and stuff like that too. That's sort of fun, but... Uh, I'm just going to have to keep doing this and talking until it finally moves all the little manuscripts to where they can get done moving because it only allows me to go so fast. There's a nice big New Testament now, collections of New Testaments appearing places and stuff like that. I had fun making these maps, though. It was sort of fun. Uh, putting Those are all real. There we go. Those are all real um, manuscripts I was putting up there. The first contrast is 
regarding the text of the Quran versus that of the Bible. Christians are very open about their scriptures and the history behind them. This is a screenshot showing uh, my edition, and that's Allen 27th edition of the Greek New Testament. This is from Logos. Some of you might rep- recognize that. It's actually the Windows version. I should redo this now that I'm a Mac guy, but uh, what can I say? Uh, notice all the information we make available, uh, the manuscripts and commentaries on the manuscripts. And, and you notice there weren't any notes at the bottom of the page of the Quran. There are no notes that say, oh, by the way, this manuscript of the Quran said this, or this manuscript of the Quran said that. It's not there. We make this kind of stuff available, and we don't say, now, are you a Christian? How are you going to use this information before I give it to you? We don't do that kind of thing. We are very, very open about these things. And in fact, uh, I, have, I have very regularly given uh, either critical editions of the Greek New Testament or commentaries in the Greek New Testament to my Islamic opponents during the course of my debates as a gift, uh, as, a, as a part of how I've engaged in, in doing this. They seem to appreciate that. Uh, you, you just can't do that when it comes to the Quran. There is a major difference between the centralized governmental control of the, of the collation and transmission of the Quranic text and the non-centralized, non-controlled transmission of the New Testament text. There is a huge difference between the two. Let's read. Uh, this is a ve- this is very important. If you sort of if the coffee is wearing off and a lunch is kicking in right now, stretch your legs, uh, uh, move around a little bit, uh, hug your wife, do something like that uh, to wake up for just a moment. Um, there are collections of the statements of Muhammad called the Hadith. The plural is Ahadith. The Hadith literature is very, very important in Islam. Now, you, the, the, there are different collections that have more authority than others. For example, the, the most widely accepted and seen as most accurate is that of Sahih al-Bukhari. Sahih means, Sahih means sound or, or uh, good, uh, examined uh, Hadith. Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih al-Muslim, Jamia Termidi, these are the, the collections that are considered to be the most authoritative. In Sahih al-Bukhari, volume, five, uh, volume 6, 519, 510, we read the following. Abu Bakr then said to me, Umar has come to me and said, Casualties were heavy among the Qura of the Quran, i.e. those who knew the Quran by heart on the day of the battle of Yalmama. And I am afraid that more heavy casualties may take place among the Qura on other battlefields. This is talking about a and I see the pastor laughing. I, I wondered if I could get through saying Yo Mama without somebody going, Yo Mama, you know, but I couldn't do it. You know, um, I was going to just go by without making mention of it. But, uh, you know, I look up and he's laughing back there. So what can I say? I had to stop. And yes, we can all let's let's all laugh at Yo Mama and move on from there. Um, spending too much time with kids. That's uh, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So all the military guys are laughing at Yo Mama? Okay, alright, the battle of, battle of Yo Mama, alright, yes. The mama of all battles. Anyways, it was, a, uh, it was a big battle and there were numerous people who were called the Kura. They had memorized the Quran and they died in this battle. And so Umar comes to Abu Bakr and he says, I'm afraid that more heavy casualties may take place among the Kura, those who've memorized the Quran on other battlefields. And notice this, this is... This is in Sahih al-Bukhari. Whereby a large part of the Quran may be lost. Therefore, I suggest you, Abu Bakr, order that the Quran be collected. And so there was a concern on Umar's part. Look, a lot of the guys we depended upon to know what the Quran said died. And so if, before anybody else dies, we better get this thing in writing. Which would mean what? Well, this is only a couple years after the death of Muhammad, but after the death of Muhammad, there is no single Quran. There is no single written record called the Quran. Or there wouldn't be a fear. I mean, if it's written down, why would you fear that a large part of the Quran might be lost if other people die? Well, it hasn't been written down. It exists only in the memories of men. And so, what happens? Well, so I started looking for the Quran and collecting it Uh, This is actually uh, Zaid speaking now. I started looking for the Quran and collecting it from what was written on palm stalks 
thin white stones and also from the men who knew it by heart. So I found the last verse of Surah Al-Taba, which is the Surah of Repentance, with Abi Kazami al-Ansari, and I did not find it with anybody other than him. So here, even in the Islamic sources, in the compilation of the Quran, as they're putting it together, they get to the point where, oh, I found one verse from Surah 9, which is one of the last surahs revealed, but I only, only found it with one person. None of the other people had this verse. Well, it really makes you wonder, given how many people died at Yalmama, how many verses actually were lost that no one else remembered. It certainly does raise that possibility. Uh, now, there are actually two compilations. Abu Bakr did one about a couple of years after Muhammad died. Then about 18 years pass, and someone comes to Uthman, who is the, the caliph at that time, and they say, man, I was just up in uh, Baghdad. I was up in Iraq. And they're quoting the Quran differently than we do here. This is a real problem. So we need to produce and distribute now a final version of the Quran. They had made one manuscript, but it was kept with just one person. So 18 years later, now around 650-ish, there's concern, and the specific concern expressed in Sahih al-Bakari is we don't want to be like the Jews and the Christians who argue over their scriptures. So Uthman makes it, asks for that previous manuscript, gathers more sources together, which he wouldn't have done if he thought that previous manuscript was perfect. And here's where we pick up. Then the complete manuscript's copy of the Quran remained with Abu Bakr till he died, then with Umar to the end of his life, and with Hafsa, the daughter of Umar. That's the first collection. Then, here's what I was just mentioning to you. Hudaifa was afraid of there the people of Sham and Iraq differences in the recitation of the Quran. So he said to Uthman, O chief of the believers, save this nation before they differ about the book, the Quran, as Jews and Christians did before. So Uthman sent a message to Hafsa saying, send us the manuscripts of the Quran so we may compile the Quranic materials in perfect copies and return the manuscripts to you. Okay, this is, like I said, 650-652. And when they had written many copies, Uthman returned the original manuscripts to Hafsa Uthman sent to every Muslim province one copy of what they had copied. So he's sending out the, the new edition and ordered that all the other Quranic materials, whether written in fragmentary manuscripts or whole copies, be burnt. This is called the Uthmanic recension. Now, was he successful in burning all of those others? I don't think so. I don't think so. If he had been, then we could not get any farther back than this period of time in examining the text of the Quran. And it causes a real problem because Uthman's not a prophet, but Uthman would have had to have gotten this perfectly right. Important issues to keep in mind. As I said, Sahih al-Bukhari 6, 509 and 510. Now, Ibn Abi Dawood in the book Kitab al-Masahif, which is the manuscript, Page 23 notes, quote, Many of the passages of the Quran that were sent down were known by those who died on the day of Yamama, but they were not known by those who survived them. Nor were they written down, nor had Abu Bakr, Umar, or Uthman by that time collected the Quran, nor were they found with even one person after them. In the Apology of Al-Kindi, a Christian written around A.D. 830, Notice what he says. Then the people fell to variance in their reading. Some read according to the version of Ali, which they followed to the present day, which would be the Shiites. Some read according to the collection of which we have made mention. One party read according to the text of Ibn Masud, and another according to that of Uba Ibn Kab. When Uthman came to power and people everywhere differed in their reading, all sought grounds of accusation against him. One man would read a verse one way, and another man another way, and there was change and interpolation, some copies having more and some less. When this was represented to Uthman, and the danger urged the division, strife, and apostasy, doesn't that sound just like what Bukhari said? Remember, this is a Christian. So when you have a Christian source and a Muslim source saying the same thing from way back then, got a good, good reason to think that they're drawing from the same sources. 
He thereupon caused to be collected together all the leaves and scraps that he could, together with the copy that was written out at first. This is identical to what Bukhari was saying. But they did not interfere with that which was in the hands of Ali or of those who followed his reading. Ubay was dead by this time. As for Ibn Masud, they demanded his exemplar, but he refused to give it up. In fact, some sources say that that the governor had uh, Ibn Masud beaten for not giving up his manuscript, and he died of his beating. And having read a bit about Ibn Masud, I think that that's probably the accurate rendering, not the more popular Sunni version of him being all cuddly with Uthman uh, at the end of his uh, end of his life. It is reported from Ismail ibn Ibrahim from Ayyub from Nafi from Ibn Umar. And if you read that in Islamic stuff, you might go, why do they say that? It's called an Isnad chain. An Isnad chain is they believe that you have to have a list of this person told to this person, this person, so you can look at the identities of each person and their integrity to see how good the chain is. That's an Isnad chain. Uh, who said, let none of you say I have acquired the whole of the Quran. How does he know what all of it is when much of the Quran has disappeared? Rather, let him say I have acquired what has survived. So in those early days, uh, there was a willingness to recognize what had happened in that early period of time in the transmission of the text. Many Muslims believe the Quran has no meaningful textual history that the Quran they possess today is a mirror image of Uthman's revision. But the fact is that there are textual variants in the early copies of the Quran and evidence of an early editing process seeking to remove Ibn Masud and Ubay Ibn Qab's influence in the text of the Quran itself. And this is the stuff that 99.99% of Muslims in the world have never seen. Like I said, when I started showing this, it got really quiet in that very large Presbyterian church. Let's look at just a few examples so we have solid facts upon which to base our discussion. Here is a variant found at Surah 3, 158, and that's what you would find in the Quran down there if you were to look at Surah 3, 158. Uh, here is the text or consideration which speaks of a law surely gathering those who die unto himself. A law will surely gather those who die unto himself. Now here is the same text from Quranic Manuscript 328 found in the National Library of France in Paris. It is dated to around a hundred years after Hijra. Hijra was 622, so sometime uh, in that hundred years. Now you may ask, how would I have access to that? Well, um, I have a couple of incredible resources in my library. And thanks to the generosity of the people of God, a couple of years ago I was able to get hold of two museum-quality facsimiles of both the Paris manuscript and the London manuscript. There might be two or three copies of this in the United States. I have one of them uh, in my office. They are $1,400 a piece just to be able to have these early uh, Qurans. And here is a photocopy from that. But as reading Hijazi text is hard even for those who read modern Arabic, let's expand the text, make it a little bit larger. Now what you can see is that the Paris manuscript has an extra olive not found in the modern printed Quranic text. But in this case, the extra olive completely changes the meaning. In the ancient text, it says those who die will not be gathered to a law, while the modern 1924 printed text says they will surely be gathered to a law. Now please make sure you understand why I point this out. I am not saying we can't figure out the original reading, but I am pointing out how important it is to have a full unedited, unedited widely dispersed manuscript tradition with which to make such determinations. Here is the difference between the two. You can see the printed edition on the left, will surely, and the ancient edition on the right, will not uh, be gathered to a law. Again, you can look in the Quran, you will not see a footnote at that particular point in time. The fact is that there were competing readings in the earliest centuries of the transmission of the Quran, specifically the tradition of Ibn Masud, as well as that of Ubay Ibn Qab, who, by the way, had more surahs uh, than uh, the current Quran has, persisted in the earliest manuscripts long after the Uthmanian attempt to reinforce a particular set of readings. This can be seen in the earliest Islamic traditions, for example, in reference to Surah 1793. Regarding Surah 1793, Abd al Razak mentions a tradition from Mujahid, we did not know what a house of ornaments, Zukruf, was 
until we saw in the Qara'a of Ibn Masud a house of gold, the Hab. So here's the text, and there is the reading as it is found today. The current reading found the Uthmanian version and the current 1924 Egyptian version speaks of a house of ornaments, Zukruf, while the Ibn Masud reading has a house of gold, the Hab. Once again, without the materials destroyed by Uthman, how does one logically and truthfully determine such issues? Well, it would be difficult to do. And that process really should be ongoing, but it's not the Muslims that are trying to engage in this process. Surah 222, and uh, when did we, we be taking a break between now and three? How long? Did, so when did you want to wrap up? About three o'clock? Okay. Ibn Masud and Surah 222 and the Fogg's Palimpsest Manuscript. Now you all are going to be able to go home tonight and you're going to be able to tell your, your families I know what a palimpsest is. How many of you right now know what a palimpsest is? Now you're about to find out. A palimpsest, this is an important term even in New Testament manuscripts as well. Remember that these ancient manuscripts were frequently written on leather, on vellum. And where did you get leather from? Well, from living creatures who are no longer living. (laughs) Uh, And so, rather than just throwing something out once you were done with it, you would frequently reuse. You'd wash off the writing and write something else on the top. So some of the more interesting New Testament manuscripts are palimpsests, where we're actually reading what had been written originally because since you're using a quill, you will be marking the surface of the leather. So by use especially of infrared or ultraviolet photography, you can actually bring out what was originally written on the leather that's underneath what has been written on top. Now, the Fogg's Palimpsest manuscript is a Quranic manuscript, but the Quran had been written on it before, had been washed off and rewritten. And what's underneath is what's most interesting, which, of course, comes earlier than what was written later, which is the more standardized text. So, uh, here is an example uh, of what is found there. when we read the original text in Fogg's manuscript of Surah 2, 222, which I have here on the top, and compare the current edition, we see not just variation, we see wholesale editing. Words are changed. You see the arrows as they appear here. The word order is changed. Verbal forms are altered. Grammatical terminations are changed between these two editions. Okay, Now, that's not done by a scribe making a mistake. You don't change grammatical terminations and word order by mistake. That's done by editing. So what you have at the top is Ibn Masud's tradition. And by the way, in the Hadith literature, uh, Ibn Masud is one of the three people that Muhammad said, if you want to know what the Quran says, go to Ibn Masud. That's why he wouldn't give his up. So his at the top, you have the edited version at the bottom, but the edited version at the bottom is what's in this Quran right here. Alright? This is why Sufyan al-Thawri is relatively short tafsir. A tafsir is a, a book of interpretation. We call it a commentary. The tafsir literature is commentary literature on the Quran. Can list 67 variant readings in the Quran, 24 of which are attributed to Ibn Masud. They didn't have any problem saying it back then because it hadn't become a bad thing to say yet. The existence of these textual issues has been well known to Muslim scholars for centuries, but has fallen out of general Islamic recognition, especially in our lifetimes. Here, for example, is just one page of many to be found in the 2007 Turkish publication of the top copy manuscript listing variations between the major early chronic manuscripts. These lists are produced by Islamic scholars, not Orientalists and not Christians. Uh, I have this edition of the top copy manuscript book. I have the cheapy edition. I have the small cheapy edition, which was $250. Uh, the real big museum quality is five grand, and that's, that's beyond our, uh, our, uh, our, our reach. But uh, 
This is produced by Muslims, showing variations between the major manuscripts at these various points in their readings at, in, the, in the Quran. So, uh, the first contrast between a centrally controlled process, Uthman versus Ibn Masud, and the non-centralized widespread promulgation of the New Testament text together with the constant search for earlier and earlier manuscripts. Uh, very quickly, the second contrast is related to the authorship of the Quran, the Bible. The Quran claims to be the very eternal words of Allah given through an angel to Muhammad. But at the very least, we can say the Quran has one human intermediary, and that is Muhammad himself. Compare that with the Bible having around 40 authors covering a span of 1,500 years. The New Testament has eight authors addressing a number of different audiences over a span of 30 to 50 years. The multiplicity of authors negatively introduces issues of consistency and allegations of contradiction. All the time, Muslims are saying, well, Paul contradicted James, or Matthew contradicted Luke, etc., etc., etc. But positively, it provides a tremendous witness to the spirit-born harmony and consistency when those alleged contradictions are examined and when they are answered. Personally, I can testify to you that after two and a half decades of study of the Christian scriptures and defense of them against leading opponents of the faith, the consistency and harmony of the biblical text is one of the most compelling reasons why I believe. The single authorship of the Quran raises questions for me as a Christian relating to the claim that the Quran has eternally existed in heaven. The origination of Surah 33, 37-38, and Muhammad's marriage to Zainab, the divorced wife of his adopted son, Zaid, is an example of this. In that particular text, the word comes down from Allah. Uh, Zaid was Muhammad's adopted son. He was even called Zaid bin Muhammad. Ibn Muhammad, son of bin Hebrew. Ibn Muhammad, the son of Muhammad. But he was adopted. And he married, I guess, a knockout named Zainab bin Jash. And one day, Muhammad went to Zaid's house and Zainab answered the door. And I guess she wasn't in full hijab. And Muhammad was smitten. I mean, I guess she was just the Raquel Welch of the ancient world, if you know, some of you are going, who? Raquel <laughs> Welch, who? Uh, whoever the knockout lady is today, I, I, I don't know, but uh, uh, back in the olden days, you know. Anyways, um, word gets around that Muhammad is smitten with Zainab. So Zaid comes and says, hey, I'll divorce her. Oh, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. But down comes the word of God to Muhammad and he's given the right um, to marry the divorced wives of adopted sons and in fact what ends up happening is the Quran teaches that adopted sons should not take the names of their fathers but they should find out what the names of their real fathers were in other words adoption itself was crippled in Islamic societies by Muhammad's desire for Zainab. And this becomes a part of the Quran. Makes it a little bit hard for me to figure out how this has been written down in Arabic from eternity past. When it's clearly rooted in the events of Muhammad's life and his desire for this beautiful woman. And of course, Muhammad is also given permission to have more than four wives. Everybody else can only have four, but he ends up having many, many more than that. Um, etc., etc. This raises all sorts of, of questions uh, concerning that. Likewise, since the Quran has only one author, how do we handle those Quranic teachings that Christians would reject as being incompatible with all the preceding scriptures? Does the author of the Quran show an accurate knowledge, for example, of the Trinity? This is an important question, for we must honestly admit that most Muslims understand the Quran to soundly condemn the central elements of the Christian faith, in particular, the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Such beliefs are described as blasphemy in the Quran, an excess in religion, shirk, unbelief, and those who believe such things will experience the fire. Note the words of just one section of Surah Al-Maida, verses 72 through 73, which says, Surah Al-Maida, Surah 5, 
They do blaspheme who say, Allah is Christ, the son of Mary, but said Christ, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will forbid him. The garden of fire will be his abode. Their will for the wrongdoers be no one to help. They do blaspheme who say, Allah is one of three in a trinity. This is the use of all e-translations. It's better to say one of, is a third of three is more literal to the Arabic. For there is no God except one, Allah. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. So if you believe in the Trinity, you're a blasphemer, according to the Quran. Well, did... These are very strong words, so it's quite proper and necessary to ask a simple question. Does the Quran ever accurately define the Trinity? Having examined all possible texts related to the subject, I must conclude that it does not. And some passages, such as Surah 5, 116, seem to present a completely erroneous understanding of the Trinity. Note the words, and we'll look at this again uh, in the next section, but just notice it. Behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, son of Mary, didst thou say unto men, Worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of Allah. He will say, Glory to thee. Never could I say that what I had no right to say. Had I said such a thing, thou wouldst indeed have known it. Thou knowest what is in my heart, though I know not what is in thine, for thou knowest all in full all that is hidden. And then the third contrast is Jesus, which I'll run through very quickly here, then we'll take some questions uh, and uh, take our break. Because we're going to go more deeply into Shirk, the doctrine of God, and stuff like that, and as we go back into the presentation I began last night, having taken this excursus to get the Quran sort of firmly in our mind. Jesus appears in the Old Testament prophetically long before his advent. He is the central character of the New Testament as the eternal Logos made flesh in John 1.14. The incarnation is the key difference. Christians believe God, who created all things, can enter into his own creation for his own purposes and glory. The incarnation is definitional to the Christian faith, but is rejected a priori as a foundational assumption by Islamic theology. Yet it was plainly taught in the earliest Christian scriptures and was surely a part of the Injil, the Gospel, that Christians were exhorted to believe and judge by in such places as Surah 547, which hopefully we'll have time to look at later on. Jesus' ministry is firmly rooted in history. His crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The Christian proclamation has always been that Jesus died at a particular point in time before many witnesses and rose again the third day. This is not just a myth, a religious story. It took place in history. And every single source rooted in the first hundred years after the crucifixion verifies that very claim. Titles given to Jesus in the New Testament include Son of God, the only Son who is God, the Monogonese Theos, John 1.18, the I Am, Alpha and Omega, the Lamb of God, the Lord of Glory, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Muslims often express the idea that Jesus did not view himself as anything but a mere prophet. Yet in the Gospel of Mark, at his trial before the Jewish authorities, Jesus drew from the Jewish scriptures and said about himself in John chapter 14, Again, the high priest is questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The Jewish leaders reacted with immediate charges of blasphemy. Why? Because they knew the source of Jesus' claim in the prophecy of Daniel. Back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man, who was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Notice what's said of him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. The Greek there is latruo, the highest form of worship. His dominion is everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus applied these words to himself. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus becomes the very center point of history itself in the New Testament narrative. In the cross, God glorifies himself by redeeming an undeserving people unto himself. Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross. He gives his life freely so those who believe in him may have eternal life. His perfect sacrifice frees those who believe in him from sin and gives them eternal life. For the Christian, Jesus as the God-man is prophet, priest, and king. As our high priest, he ever lives to make an accession for his people, guaranteeing to them the benefits of his death. The Bible teaches we are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection so that his resurrection becomes the guarantee that we too arise and enter into the rest of God all due to what he has done on our behalf. This is why Christians seek to live holy lives, not to earn salvation, but to glorify out of a heart of love the one who saved us. Notice I am emphasizing the voluntariness of Christ's death because this is one of the very uh, huge stumbling blocks in evangelizing Muslims. They don't see how God could ever allow 
how Allah could have ever allowed one of his exalted prophets to die in such a horrible fashion. The fact that Jesus gives himself voluntarily must be emphasized to the Muslim. In contrast, in the Quran, the name for Jesus used in the Quran is Isa. It appears 25 times in the Quran, specifically only once in an identifiable location, that is when he's speaking from his cradle. Uh, that was actually uh, found, uh, take a story taken from the Arabic infancy gospel originally written in Syriac in the 5th or 6th century. The Quran uses all sorts of ahistorical sources as if what they record is actual history, including the Gnostic Gospels and the infancy gospel of Thomas where Jesus uh, creates clay birds and breathes on them. They become real living birds and fly away. That's in the Quran. It was, it was later... Gnostic Christian mythology, but the Quran shows absolutely no uh, discernment in historical sources, primarily because it's not using written documents. It's all things that Muhammad heard and therefore did not discern between them, ends up in the text of the Quran. Uh, the Jesus of the Quran is virgin born. Uh, he does work miracles, including miracles that we don't believe that he actually worked because they come from the Gnostic Gospels. He is, however, not the Son of God, nor does He die upon the cross. Uh, we will look at Surah 4, 1-7 later on that denies that. Um, the Quran of Jesus, according to Therese Khalidi, and Therese Khalidi is a very liberal Muslim. That's why he lives at Cambridge <laughs> and, and not Riyadh uh, or Al-Azhar or someplace like that. The Quran of Jesus is in fact an argument addressed to his more wayward followers intended to convince the sincere and frighten the unrepentant. As such, he has little in common with the Jesus of the Gospels, canonical or apocryphal. And he's right. Uh, the Jesus of the Quran is not a person that you could love. He's an argument for monotheism and the prophethood of Muhammad. And like I said, he only speaks from identifiable historical location one time, from his own cradle. Uh, very different than the Jesus of the Bible. The Quran's denial of the crucifixion is particularly troubling historically as there are few events in history so compellingly witnessed to. Only one ayah in all the Quran denies the crucifixion, a total of 40 Arabic words with no commentary in the Hadith. We'll look at that a little bit later on. So in conclusion, Muslims and Christians need to discuss the text of their scriptures. Christians invite open examination of the history of the text while at the same time rejecting mere naturalistic explanations and materialistic scholarship. Uh, and the authorship of the scriptures as well as the relationship exists between them as the Quran makes reference to the Torah and the Injil. So, there's a little of your Quranic background, and so what we'll do after we... We'll take some questions here for about 10 minutes. Uh, we'll take a break, and then we'll get started again at 3.30. We'll go back into the presentation I was doing last night, now with a little better foundation, I think, uh, for you to understand the Quranic passages where we'll talk about what it teaches about Jesus, about the Trinity, about the crucifixion, and then make uh, application from there.